Good morning, good morning. Uh, I feel like we've already had church with the kids' choir, baptisms. We had five today. We had two in the, in the first service as well. And so I feel like, like we could just pray and go home. Uh, but we have 52 verses, uh, courtesy of uh, Psalm 89. And so we've got to get to work. Um, this, is, this has actually been a, a fairly daunting uh, chapter to, uh, to figure out how to preach. And um, as I was driving here today, the Lord reminded me, he said, Walter, reading 52 verses is going to edify them more than anything you have to say. <laughs> and so I feel like I could just read the passage twice and so we can go home, but I won't. But, uh, but anyway, uh, so as we often do around here, we, we try to allow the text before us to not only set the meaning of what we say, but also give the feel of how it's communicated. I, I remember reading, you know, chapters one and two of Colossians. I feel like I'm just gazing at the wonder and the majesty of our Savior. Also, texts like Psalm 19, where we uh, just understand the grandeur of God's creation. I feel like I'm sucked into one of the most beautiful places I've ever been, and I'm just looking in awe at the handiwork of God. And passages like Psalm 19, or uh, uh, Romans 9, rather, I feel like I'm at a desk, and I'm being schooled by the Almighty about the intricacies of salvation. But now we come to this text today. This passage causes me to cry out to God with all of my sorrows in life. I feel like I'm just curling up on a couch in the arms of my Lord, tears flowing and tissues in abundance. During this Advent series in Psalms, the fire is glowing, the Christmas tree is up, the eggnog is flowing, and I feel like we're telling the Lord all about our struggles. And at the end of it, he listens and he tells us, it's going to be all right. And so for Ethan, the author of this psalm, I hear him lamenting in despair as he's writing these words, because this is what's going on in the context. You know, he he's, has all of this in his heart. He's saying, you know, we've been taken from our land in Jerusalem. We are now captive in Babylon. Our homes and our places of worship are being destroyed. Everyone who passes by our homes, they just continue to plunder us. And it seems like you're strengthening our enemies against us. And he cries out to God, have you rejected us? Have you renounced your covenant with us? How long, O oh Lord? Will you hide yourself from us forever? You guys ever been there before? I know people in our own congregation are asking questions. I just lost a loved one. I, 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 I'm desperate to be married. Because of my diagnosis, I, this will probably be my last Christmas. My husband has left me. I can barely pay my, barely pay my bills. I've lost my job uh, after an already difficult year. My boss treats me like dirt, and I feel like everything in this world is just crushing in on me, and we cry out to God, do you see me down here? Do you care? How long, O oh Lord? And in these moments, Ethan is a great example because in the pit of despair, he starts reminding himself about the truth of God and praising the Lord amidst a season of absolute darkness. And there's in these, in these moments in our lives, we have to begin to praise our way through it. Amen? And so reminding ourselves of the greatness of God and his love for us, which is exactly what he does in verses 1 to 4. So let's read those together. It says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations, for I 
uh, said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. Uh, I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And so in the midst of all this, all of his trials, Ethan re- reassures himself, and then now us, because we're reading this, about the steadfast love of God that will never cease. His eyes are filled with tears, but he's understanding that there's a God out there who's bigger than all these problems that seem so large to me. And so he begins to recommit his mind to what is true, reminding himself of God's steadfast love. And so for some of us, as we're in the midst of our trials, we act like complaining is going to fix anything. I'm going to start naming names, but y'all can just let the Spirit convict you. <laughs> Suffice it this, I, I, I point to myself too. My, my wife and my kids know that. And so uh, that's not Ethan's testimony though. His is one where he, in the midst of his trials, uh, he sees that joy comes through praising and not complaining. And so we have to turn our complaints into thanksgiving. And so when we're in seasons of darkness like this, it helps us to remember seasons of light. This is why in the Old Testament they raise their Ebenezer because they need to go back and see and be reminded that God has been faithful and he's been faithful again. He's been faithful again because our hearts are prone to wonder. We forget so quickly about all the light and the glory that God has shown us when we're in times of darkness. So God is so good. And so we have the first two verses, God's steadfast love. And then you might be seeing, okay, I see that in verse 1 and 2, but verses 3 to 4, they don't make sense. You know, oh yeah, I see how God's steadfast love is going to help me, but what about the stale covenant he talks about? What's that? How's that going to help me when I'm crying? And so I'm glad you asked. Because, get this, the love is in verses 1 and 2, but because God is a God of action, not just of talk, the evidence of his love for us is in verses 3 and 4. As DC Talk we used to say, love is a verb. Amen. (laughs) Verses 3 and 4, Ethan, he is referencing this Davidic covenant. And I'll, I'll break that idea down for us. So covenants are an agreement that God makes and establishes with his people, And there are several covenants throughout Scripture, and the one Ethan is referencing is one that uh, that God has made to David. So the Davidic covenant is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses about 4 to 17, but I got a couple verses I just want to read for us, Uh, 12 to 13. It says, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. I will reestablish the throne of his kingdom, or I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so to summarize, God praised, uh, promised David that his kingly line would go on forever. There will be a throne, there will be a kingdom, as we see in verse 13 there, and it will have no end. And I'm sure David was like, well, how does that work? But this is, this is it. This promise is, goes farther than David could have ever imagined because that everlasting kingdom, there will be none other than the Son of Man sitting at the throne, ruling as the Messiah forever and ever. Some of you guys are wondering, well, what's, what this got to do with my problems? 
And I, I promise you, stick with me, because it gets good. Because most of these contracts, or these covenants, as we would uh, call them back in the day, they have at least two people who sign on the dotted line. The first one is the official signature of the one who has the goods, the one who has the stuff, the lender who is uh, the, the lender for the mortgage. I know some people who just sign mortgages, amen? Uh, <laughs> uh, hiring managers, offering somebody a job the insurance broker who's providing the coverage. And so then there's the second person who signs, and they're the real one receiving the goods or services, and they must fulfill all the obligations on the contract. And so here, here it is, here it is, if you're wondering where this hits you. The covenant that God made to David is unconditional. So an unconditional covenant means that God didn't place any obligations or conditions on anyone to fulfill what he said he's going to do. The only person who's signing on the contract in the Davidic covenant is God himself. And so the security of this covenant rests solely on the God, the maker of heaven and earth. And for us today, that is good news. It doesn't rest on us, those who are wayward, those who have an inability to keep our commitments. So despite overall our hot and cold waverings toward God, the good news is that despite us, God is working to see the promise to David to completion. And the great news is, is that you and I are the beneficiaries of the goodness of that covenant because there's a kingdom that's going to come and the son of David is going to sit on the throne forever and ever. Amen. And so, as we look to this, th these verses ahead of us, we, like Ethan, we look around us, and it seems like we're up against everything. And while it's easy to cry out in despair and to complain, we must remember that God is working out this covenant even now. And what we understand about God is that he stands outside of time, and so when he makes a promise, he exists simultaneously, both in the moment when he made it and the moment it is fulfilled. And so think about that a little bit. It's as good as done. So when you recall something is good, when you, when you recall how good God is, sometimes you just got to take a praise break. So that's exactly what he does in verses 5 to 8. We see Ethan praising God. So here we go. It says, Let the heavens praise, uh, praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? A, great, uh, a, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. And so uh, <laughs> this isn't the first time we've seen a response of, in worship like this in the Bible. So if you've read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we read about Paul just breaking out into worship. And so these verses are on the screen for you here. It says, but I, recent, I received mercy from, or for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, and as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might be displayed his perfect patience as an example to those who, uh, who were to believe in him for eternal life. And he says this, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Sometimes you just got to praise him. Sometimes when God is just so good and we are so bad, we just got to thank God for being himself to us. 
And so in verses 5 to 8, uh, Ethan breaks out into his little praise break, and he says, you know what? Even the stature of the best people is nothing compared to God. And so uh, you, you see that in verses 5 to 7, the psalmist talks about the assembly or the council of the holy ones. And so let's imagine that in the biblical text for a second. We see Abel, who offered a sacrifice better than his brother. We imagine Enoch, who was swept up into the heavenly so he would not taste death. We see Ruth, who faithfully cared for her mother-in-law and forsook the gods of her own people. And even here, we got some super saints here, so I'm just going to name some names. Jay and Kim Humphrey, I see them, I'm like, oh man, they, they got something going on. Kendall and Sean Blythe, y'all, y'all, y'all faithful. Uh, Eric Loomis, the, the O'Donohues, I'm like, these are the super saints in my book amongst us, but even them and the scripture and also among us pale in comparison to the greatness of our God. Nobody can hold a candle to him. And in verses 7 and 8, he says, a, great, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him, which begs the question in verse 8, O Lord of hosts, who is as mighty as you are? The, question, the answer is nobody. He, God, is unparalleled. He is undefeated. He is unrivaled. And even in our darkest hour, the most treacherous evil cannot stand against him. Who is like the Lord? Nobody. So the psalmist demonstrates God's matchlessness highlighted by his command of creation in verses 9 to 14. So let's read those together. It says, You rule, and you rule the raging of the sea, and when its waves rise... You still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth is yours. The world and all that is in it. You have founded them. You have made them is what he's trying to say. Verse 12, the north and south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So the raging of the sea in verses 9, uh, we, we see that, coupled with what happens with the carcass of Rahab, which is like, it's sort of talking about, it's an illusion, to the fact that we're not just talking about any random sea. This is a direct reference to the Red Sea, that where God parted it and delivered his people from oppression and slavery from Egypt. So throughout the scripture, we're, we see the destructive power of water. And so, and we see that primarily in early in the scriptures in the flood of Noah. But this Advent, I've been thinking a lot about Jesus, as we all have, the promised one, and the significance of this for, for, uh, for him in our lives. And, and I thought about Jesus' interaction with water. In creation, as the agent of creation, he put the water in the place. At the wedding, he demonstrated his command over water by turning it into wine. And then he calmed the storm, and his disciples, they declared, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? There is nobody like him. Who is like the Lord? Nobody. Verses 11 and 12, they demonstrate the power of God over creation. And then he surveys the totality of his creation in verse 11 by saying, the heavens and the earth are yours. Verse 12, you, you've created the north and the south. They're yours. And then he goes on to verse like 14. It is not just that God is powerful. Because we've all had a tyrant of a powerful boss. 
We have, we, we've seen awful dictators in this world. So it's not just that he's powerful, it's that he's good. Righteousness, justice, steadfastness, love, those all mark how the power of our God is wielded and used for our good. Because of God's power and goodness, everyone who follows the Lord will ultimately be blessed. And nothing is out of God's control. That thing that's on your heart right now, it's not under God's control. The thing that kept you up last night, the Lord knows about it. He even knows about more menial things like the number of decreasing hairs on your head. The Lord knows all of it. And so what he says then, because we have this God who is so good, blessed are those who walk with this God. Let's read verses uh, 15 and 18. He says, blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted, for you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, the Lord, the, our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, and our king to the Holy One of Israel. And then very quickly, Ethan follows up in the next sort of handful of verses, uh, verses 19 to 37, basically giving a lot more sort of uh, uh, exp- explanation about this covenant. So if you don't like poetry, I'm sorry, because it's about to get real poetic from verses 19 to 37. And so what I'll do, though, is I'll give you a little bit of like running commentary as we sort of go through it. Okay, verse 19. Of old, you spoke in a, in a vision to your, to your Holy One and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen uh, uh, from the people. And so right now we see that David's kingdom and his, uh, his, uh, his dynasty is set up like no other kingdom in the world. Every other king had to go out and grab their power. They had to go get it. They had to make war and things like that. But this kingdom, this throne, this line is given by God and is also sustained by God. So verse 20, he says, I have found David, my servant, with my, with my holy oil. I have anointed him. This is recalling where David was anointed by Saul, uh, Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, verses uh, 11 Sorry, verses 1 to 13, if you want to read that later. Uh, but verse 21 says, So that my hand shall be established with him, my arm also sh- uh, shall, shall strengthen him, the enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him, I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love, that's a theme that we keep seeing, my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. I love verse 25 there because it says he set his uh, hand on the sea, his right hand on the rivers. That, that's talking about a, a land that's going to stretch from the Red Sea all the way to the Euphrates River. It's a particular land. It's a promised land. And so uh, let's continue in verse 26. It says, he shall cry to me, you are my father and my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him uh, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, and my steadfast love, I will keep him 
forever. And my covenant, I shall stand firm uh, for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Okay, so now as we uh, work through these verses, we're about to transition to some of the conditional aspects of this covenant. And But hear me now, it's not that God is, again, not uh, holding Israel to some sort of a list of regulations to keep the covenant. He's just saying, well, if you're faithless towards me, if you're unrighteous, there's going to be some consequences and bumps in the road along the way, okay? You guys get that? God is doing this thing always, but he's saying, but there's going to be some repercussions for foolishness. So verses 30 to 32 says, if uh, his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and uh, do not keep my uh, commandments, I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. And so, but uh, true to form, God reassures his faithfulness in the face of their unfaithfulness. So you see them right together. So verse 33, I, and, and, but I, after all that, no matter what they do, but I will not remove my, uh, uh, remove him, try it again, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I love that language, be false to my faithfulness, because he's swearing by himself, promising by himself, because he can't swear by anybody higher. He can't make a promise by anybody greater. He himself is the standard of faithfulness. And this is like him saying, you know, tell him, I am sent you. This is who I am. Faithfulness is going to be faithful to you. Verses 34 and 35. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went from my lips. Uh, 35. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. God is not a liar. In verses 36 and 37, once again, he says, okay, there, we were, even if you act up, God is going to be faithful. And then now, again, by the power that we see exhibited in all of creation, verses 36 and 37, say this, his offspring shall endure forever, his throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. So thus far in this passage today, we've seen uh, uh, the, the steadfastness of God highlighted. His wonder, his beauty, his faithfulness to his covenant. But still there's the matter of verses 30 to 32. And if there, there's an if-then statement. You guys see that? If his, David's, children forsake my law and do not walk according to my statutes, in verse 31, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquities with the stripes. And so, as you know, the Old Testament is this, it's like Groundhog Day, the movie. Like, they're not, they're not faithful, and then they repent. They mess around, and they come back to Jesus. And then, like, back and forth. And when I was a kid, I'll be honest with you, I was like, man, Israel, they need to get their stuff together. And then I grew up. And I was like, Walter, you need to get your stuff together. And the same with y'all, because y'all are a mess. But God, right? And so this is what happens when God raised up 
uh, Babylon to discipline uh, or judge Israel. Verses, we'll, begin, we'll begin in verses 38 to go to 45. It says, but now you cast off and re, uh, now you have cast off and rejected. You, have, you are full of wrath against your anointed. You have uh, renounced the covenant of, uh, with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have, uh, you have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him, and he has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have uh, exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of the sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made, he's mad, y'all. Uh, you have made his splendor to cease uh, and cast his thro- and cast his throne uh, to the ground. You have you have uh, you have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Have you guys ever had a day like this? We're on the one hand singing the glories of God so poetically, but at the same time, your heart is shattered. You're distressed. God, I know this stuff to be true, but also this is real as well. And so what, you know, I think Ethan is a great example to us, being able to do both And I know some of us have grown up in places where we couldn't ask our faith hard questions. We weren't allowed to do that. Because it seems as if asking hard questions of God greases the skids down the road to apostasy. But I think Ethan is so helpful here because he's just being real. We live in a time where, yes, Jesus is ruling and reigning in the heavenlies. He's ruling and reigning in our hearts, but he has not yet sealed all that down here quite yet. We live in this already not yet reality, and so there will be a day to come when there's no injustice, no death, no brokenness, no more abuse, but that time is still on the horizon, but it is going to happen. God's faithfulness reassures us of that. And so challenges, they come to us for various reasons. Sometimes our dark days come because God is disciplining us for what we've done. But also there are other times when the reality of our sin-cursed world just catches up to us. But it's in those moments, and it's in those moments, hear me now, that we experience God in new ways. It's in those dark days where we feel like we can't even get out of bed that we depend on God like never before. It is, you know, when we are just completely just uh, broken down, we can't do anything for ourselves. God cuts through the busyness and the craziness, and we can hear him like we have never heard him before. Don't let those moments pass you by without doing that because the Lord wants to be with you. Don't stiff arm him in your your troubles because you're frustrated with him. This is when you bring him near. There's a word for you even now. In that moment, God is good. And so in these dark seasons, we have to hear from God. Even those who love us and who want to work for our good, they're not perfect. We need to hear a word from the Lord. So Ethan, please, uh, with God there, looking at verses 46 to 52, He begs God to make good on his promises because it's dark out here, is what he's saying. It's sad. It seems like all the stuff we had talked about and that covenant you made with us, where is it? So he says, uh, verse 46, how long, O Lord? 
Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your, will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my life is. Y'all remember, they were in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, which felt like a lifetime. In fact, for some of us, that's a lifetime. How long have you been in your season? Has it been seven days? Has it been seven years? Has it been 70 years? In our difficult times, we're prone to ask the question, how long? Because it seems like God is nowhere to be found, but nothing is out of his control. Nothing. So verse 47 says this in the second half of it. It says, uh, for what vanity you have created all the children of man. Verse 48. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? I know there's a sailor there, but we don't have time to pause. And so verse 49. Lord... Where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, uh, how your servants are mocked, and, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. And so I love how this psalm ends. We've seen him praise the Lord. We have also seen him thank God for the covenant. We've seen him say, you know, remind himself poetically of the covenant. And we see him say, yeah, the covenant is, is good. Yes, I get it. But also, it's hard right now. And then after he says all these things and begs God to come back, he still looks up to God and says, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. So as we sort of close today, there are five things that I think we can remember from this text uh, when we're in the storm. God's steadfast love. God's love is so consistent. He's constantly pursuing us. And it, when it feels like he's not, it's because you're not receiving it. Receive the love of God today. It is good and steadfast, long-suffering, even when we're fickle. Number two, God's power. We see God's power in two different places in our text today, demonstrated in his power over creation, demonstrated in his ability to keep his covenant. This is a God who, we, he has the ability to work all things together. He finishes the stuff that he starts. Number three, God's sustaining grace is always there. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. His, his presence is better to us than we can imagine, and that is a good gift of grace to us. And number four, God's covenant, which shows us again that God keeps his promises. God is working, he is working, he is working. And when it feels like we are falling apart, that God has forgotten us, that God, do you see us? God is working, he is working, he is fulfilling his promise. Number five, remember God's king, the savior. And so now we are, during this season, we, we're celebrating Jesus and let's be comforted by the fact that God has been faithful to his covenant to send Jesus, and then he's going to come back and fulfill it on this earth. And so Christianity is like no other religion out there because it, the other religions demand that we find our way to Jesus. And so I'm, I'm reminded of a scene that I'll never get out of my mind. Uh, it was just after Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. There was a man who was bruised and beat up on his roof. The water line was at the, the bottom of his roof, and there's a helicopter that came. And then it settled over his house. 
And in every other religion, the idea is that we will have to find our way to get to safety. But the paramedic in the helicopter, he came down on a stream. He wouldn't grab that man off of his roof. Not because the man had any more strength, because the paramedic was able to grab him and take him up into safety. This is what Christmas is all about. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, came down into all this mess to rescue us. And this is why we talk about the reason for the season. This is why we talk about Jesus right now, with all the candles and all the decorations and all the singing, all the kids on the stage, because God has not left us in our affliction. God has, he sees you, and he's done what is necessary for you to one day live in a place where there's no more brokenness. This is real, guys. So as you are in the, the pit of despair, understand that the, the, the message of Christmas is that Jesus has not left you there. He has not. He is too loving he is too kind. He is too good and better, more good than you and I deserve to leave us there by ourselves. And so if you're not in Christ today, let him take you. Let receive the salvation that's been offered to you in Christ. Allow yourself to be swept up into this narrative, one that is uh, healing everything that's been broken by the stain of sin. Accept Christ into your life. He'll do what you cannot do yourself. He'll clean you up. He'll, 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 he'll put you in a family, us, which could be a, a, not a selling point, but that's <laughs> the fact of the matter. And we're going to struggle together. And we're going to work Christward together. And one day, <laughs> one day, our faith will become sight and we'll be in the presence of our God forever. And so if you're a believer today, the admonition is simple. Stay the course. Our God is faithful. And as he said in, in verse 52, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our God, you have been so good to us. You are so faithful. Your steadfast love is in our face constantly in the scriptures. When we're in seasons... Sometimes where that's just so abundantly evident. And then, God, there's times where we're in seasons where that are hard. And so I pray that we would see our God as one that we can be honest with today. Honest with our, with our faith and our desire to see him face to face. But also honest with the difficulty of what's going on in our lives right now. God, show your face. Let us hear your voice. Let us sense your presence this Christmas season in a way that is just unbelievable. Where we can only say that God himself is with us. So God, we, we need you today. I pray for anybody who doesn't know Jesus, who's trying to figure out how to uh, get through a dark season on their own. They've tried everything besides turning to you. So God, I pray that you would show yourself as the one who is above every name. And God, I, I do thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. We pray all this in your name. Amen.